Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. This morning we're going to be speaking about the Torah portion, that section of Torah read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world known as Yitro. Yitro is the Hebrew for Jethro, the name of the father-in-law of Moses, also identified in the Torah as a priest of Midian. It is found in Exodus 18 and continues through Exodus 23, and of course is highlighted by the revelation of the Aserata Dibrot, the Ten Statements, or as our guest this morning will help us understand, better known as the Ten Commandments. Let me give you an overview of the Torah reading. Um, before I introduce our guest who will help us unpack the more challenging aspects of this week's Torah portion. Moses, father-in-law of Jethro, hears of the great miracles which God performed for the people of Israel and comes from Midian to the Israelite camp, bringing with him Moses' wife and two sons. Jethro advises Moses to appoint a hierarchy of magistrates and judges to assist him in the task of governing and administrating justice to the people. The children of Israel are camped opposite what is called Mount Sinai, where they are told that God has chosen them to be his um, Mamlechet Kohanim, kingdom of priests, and Am Kadosh, a holy nation. The people respond by proclaiming, all that God has spoken, we shall do. The Torah is then very specific. On the sixth day of the seventh month, seven weeks after the Exodus, the entire nation of Israel assembles at the foot of Mount Sinai for the giving of God's word, the giving of the Torah. God descends on the mountain amidst thunder, lightning, billows of smoke, and blasts of the shofar and summons Moses to ascend. God proclaims the Aserah Adibrot, commanding the people to believe in God, not to worship idols, not to take God's name in vain, to keep the Sabbath, honor their parents, not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to cover another's property. Most of these, I think, you're aware of. The people cry out to Moses that the revelation is too much for them to bear, begging Moses to personally receive the Torah from God and convey it to them. Of course, the giving and receiving of the Ten Commandments are well known to all listeners, regardless of what religious tradition they may have grown up in or what religious tradition they practice today. With me this morning to try and unpack the importance of this Torah portion is Rabbi Brooke Sussman, who was ordained at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1974 after receiving his bachelor's degree at Ohio University. In 1999, he received a Doctor of Divinity degree from Hebrew Union College. During his years in seminary, he opened the draft counseling service. 
He focused as a counselor, especially focusing on family issues. He has served congregations and synagogues in New York, Pennsylvania, Missouri, and he is the founding rabbi of Congregation Kol Am, serving the Jewish community of Western Monmouth County of New Jersey. He is on the board of directors of the New York Board of Rabbis, as well as the International Synagogue at the Kennedy Center. He has been an advocate for reform Zionism, having served um, as a director of the ARTSA, the North American Association of Zionists, and he has served as the editorial board for the authoring of books of that movement entitled Gates of Mitzvah and Gates of Festivals. It is a pleasure to invite Rabbi Sussman again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Good morning. Good morning, Rabbi Garten. It's good to be with you, as well as uh, the listeners. I believe this is my fourth or fifth go-round with you, so I'm honored to be with you again. Well, it is always a pleasure to learn with you and to learn from you, and our listeners feel the same way. Um, I've invited you this morning to speak about one of the um, essential uh, Torah portions in um, the books of the uh, five books of Moses, um, the giving and receiving of the Ten Commandments. So let's begin with just a brief overview. Um, why do you think this proclamation, which the Hebrew calls the Aserita Debrot, the Ten Statements, is so significant for all monotheistic traditions? You use the term monotheistic and you use the term God. We have to be more specific in this. There's a term uh, that was essentially written by Robert Wright in his book, The Evolution of God, and the term is monolatry. Monolatry is defined as there are a number of gods, deities, who are followed by other religions, sects, communities, but for us, there is only one God. That's monolatry. We're moving into a monotheistic ideology that is the basis of the three Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Abrahamic because they all stem from Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. The word for that we generally hear, the Lord God said. Well, the Lord is the specific name of the God of Israel. It's the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, yud heh vav which is defined as Yahweh or Jehovah, Adonai, Adoshem, Y-H-W-H. But God is Elohim, a plural noun. What happens with, through the Ten Commandments and through the entire Bible is the singularization of that plural, where Elohim is no longer the plural noun, but the God of Israel, Yahweh, becomes Ha-Elohim, the God. Hence, we have in the first of the Ten Commandments, this statement of monolatry. Elohim, the plural noun, says to the people, I am Yahweh, Jehovah, your Elohim. And everything stems from that. So you're suggesting from our listeners that 
what we call the Ten Commandments is um, a different structure regarding um, how we see deity in the world. Yes. That when I began by speaking of monotheism, which is usually assumed to mean there is only one God, um, perhaps called different names and uh, um, understood differently by different traditions, the Ten Commandments says, no, 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 um, you shall have no other God before me, um, offering the Israelites and all listeners the sense that there are other possibilities. This is the middle ground between polytheism and monotheism. We have to get logically from a polytheistic world to a monotheistic world. That's monolatry and that's the Ten Commandments. It's the acknowledgement of a, of a monolatristic deity who is the God and the, the Elohim God protector of the children of Israel. So we understand from all that we've studied together that this piece of text known as the Torah is a fairly old text. Um, some people believe that it was uh, delivered by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, which might have been nearly uh, 3,000 years ago. And some people believe that it is um, written following the um, first exile into Babylonian in 586, which would put it at a uh, more likely at 2,500 years ago. Um, but the sacred texts of Islam and uh, Christianity are much later. But they are both dependent. Both of those traditions, both the Christian Bible and the Quran, are dependent upon the monolatry of this comet and the movement into monotheism. Because this Yahweh, this Jehovah, is in, in the Trinity, the Father. It's also Allah. And so we're dealing with the same deity. Good. That's what I was hoping you would explain to our listeners, that though there was a significant time lag, both um, of the other Abrahamic faiths use this text as foundational. Absolutely. And what's, what's different about, there are 613 commandments in the Hebrew Bible. Why these 10? Because these are the only commandments that the people heard. And as you said, the people said, this is too frightening for us. You, Moses, go receive the rest. So the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai are known as Adim, witnesses. They witnessed the voice, the sound, the revelation of God, and were given these aserat hadibot, these 10 commandments. When I was introducing to our listeners this morning the Torah portion, um, I noted for them that it's during this revelation that God identifies the people as um, Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, and Am Kedushah, a holy people. Yes. Um, why is this use of these terms, which some people identify with the English of chosenness, why is it introduced here? The, the importance of the word holy people, the word Kodesh. Now, as Jews, we have Kiddushin, Kadesh, Hekdesh, which we more often than not define as holy. But in, there's nothing inherently holy in Jewish tradition. 
It's the purpose to which we put things that make for holiness. So I have in my hand a silver goblet. I have a choice. I can either use that cup, that goblet, to make a mint julep on Kentucky Derby Day, or I can use it as Elijah's cup at a Passover Seder. I have segregated, I have set apart that cup as a Kiddush cup, and it becomes holy because I have set it apart from all other purposes. Therefore, it becomes holy. That's what the children of Israel agree to. They are going to be separate from all other traditions, all other Elohim gods for only this God. That's what makes them a holy people and a kingdom of priests. Interestingly, when you mentioned that Jethro was a priest of Midian, it's the term is Kohen Midian, the same thing as the Kohenim, the priests of Israel. And so there's this priestly notion that I have set myself apart, thereby making myself holy through the choices I have made, separating me from the everyday, from the other. And this Ten Commandments separates these, these laws separate the children of Israel from other cultural notions, other traditions, other revelations by other presumed Elohim gods. So the people in and of themselves, like your goblet, are not inherently holy. What they choose to do, as in your example of how you chose to make your goblet uh, Kos Eliyahu, a cup for Elijah, what they do when they proclaim we will do it, is their acceptance of the offer from the deity to become holy. They, by their actions. By their actions. In the 613 laws, they're what I can call the vertical laws, the laws between me and God. Then there are the horizontal laws, the laws between you and me as human beings, how we deal with each other in a cultural way, in societal ways, Leviticus 19, that I don't take advantage of everyone else. I become Kodesh holy by accepting those laws as God-given, God-inspired, God-revealed, but most meaningful. For instance, I think the importance of the Ten Commandments, and I don't use this as a joke, do not quote the Ten Commandments to a starving family. Because if you do, they are going to break every commandment. They are going to steal. They are going to covet. They are going to curse their parents. They're going to hate God. Every one of the Ten Commandments will be broken. You need the other commandments to buttress those ten. Those Ten Commandments are the final requiring how do I do it? How do I make a, con a community or a nation or a world where no one will have to steal, where no one will have to covet, will no one have to curse others, will no one have to, to be so envious of others that they hate themselves and might even lead to committing murder? So the horizontal laws, as you've said elsewhere, are the societal laws that ensure that the um, other laws, the vertical laws related to the individual and the deity, uh, have a context for fulfillment. Yes, and they also guarantee that the Ten Commandments can be upheld. Without the horizontal laws, I, I can't guarantee the efficacy of those Ten Commandments. 
because I'll break them. That puts a new look on these uh, overused uh, statements um, because you're suggesting not um, a bifurcation between the first five as uh, God and uh, humanity um, and between humanity and humanity in the second five, but rather they're an integrated whole. If I am starving, I'm going to make a god of a can of beans because it's going to, it will allow me to survive. So you've offered the listeners a really um, wonderful introduction into um, how to contextualize um, that which they've known from many other sources. And certainly you've uh, suggested to them that the pyrotechnics of uh, the movies or even the text itself are the least important um, component of this. Um, what other insight um, would you like to offer our listeners concerning uh, this uh, important um, revelation? It's divinely inspired. It's necessary for us for survival without killing each other. In fact, the mistranslation of the word of one of the commandments, Lo Tirzach, which more often not we hear, "Thou shalt not kill." You know something? It's required within the the, the holy texts of the three Abrahamic religions that there are some times that we are required to kill for self-defense, for self-protection, to defend our national borders, to defend others. But we never have the right to murder, and that's. The difference. That's how it becomes so vital to us to really understand the the essence of what that Hebrew was offering. For instance, God's name. So before you leave, let's help our listeners understand. I, I didn't mean leave uh, physically, but before you leave that thought, um, you've made a distinction between killing and murder. Correct. Um, how do you understand this text to make that distinction? And what has it meant throughout Jewish tradition, and perhaps um, through the world as well? Jewish tradition has always been against the notion of capital punishment throughout all of our texts. Capital punishment is a formalized act of pre premeditated murder by the state. The act of murder, the act of taking one's life, is completely against the against the law to kill by necessity for self-protection self-defense is not only permitted but required the bible is replete with statements you will have to go against that nation you will have to fight against that deity you will have to protect and self-defend oneself one's community and one's existence and sometimes we must one will martyr one's self to protect but we also have examples where the Torah um, imposes um, punishment. The death penalty. The death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and while our listeners may be familiar, that later rabbis seem to be uncomfortable with that. Certainly the Torah. More, more than uncomfortable, they are they are absolutely denying, they are saying this is only for educational purposes, that any kind of death penalty is the province of the deity. 
And so it gives permission, reshut in Hebrew, to um, interpret those sections of Torah where um, you, if you have a recalcitrant teenager, um, you can put them to death. Yes, I, I know. I, 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 have, I have daughters, and they have the temerity to wear slacks. Well, according to the Bible, they're culpable for death by stoning. Uh, well, we'll stay away from that one and simply <laughs> remind the listeners that often the violation of Shabbat led to the same punishment. Exactly. And so it, it is for putting an exclamation point after certain decisions and certain actions. So, the, you know, this is really the bad stuff. Well, that's, I hope that the listeners have he heard that distinction because it's certainly um, common within Western society to say the Ten Commandments forbids us to kill, um, and yet we have all these examples of religious uh, killing in the name of faith. Uh, which seems to be a violation of the text, and um, they would not say that it's murder. I, I gave the invocation at the United States Memorial Day's uh, observance, and I, in my invocation, made the distinction between killing and murdering. A number of Marines came up to me afterward to thank me for making that distinction, because they always hated the idea that they were sent to murder, they knew that they would have to perhaps kill, but they would never allow themselves to commit murder. And I think that is a vital importance. And I'm sure that there were probably Marines who felt um, relieved to know that in your interpretation and in Jewish interpretation, even if they weren't Jewish, um, this was not a violation of God's word. Exactly. So are there other phrases or other sentences in the Ten Commandments that call out for that kind of interpretation? I think, yes, of the, thou shalt not lie. I know in the United States, very often you place your hand on the Bible in a court, I, tell, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing by, but the truth, so help me God. That quote, the, the commandment, you shall not take God's name in vain. Well, what does that mean? It means... Don't make a promise because any promise that you make includes God. So help me, God, if I am lying, I am making God a partner to that lie. And so it, it deals with how we respond honestly because anytime we say something, whether we are, anytime we make a claim, we are involving God in that claim. So while in common parlance, it's often interpreted not to use four-letter expletives. The Torah isn't uh, so concerned about uh, teenagers um, uh, using expletives. The Torah is interested in um, if you use God as the guarantor yes. of your uh, commitment to others, then do not uh, go back on that guarantee. Because that's what takes God's name in vain. God co-signs my pledge. Wow, that's a great way to uh, phrase it. Um, because all of us know of people who say, I swear to God. Mm -hmm. And who I promise on a stack of Bibles. Um, phrases that are common to many. And in that sense, um, the Torah is saying, if you choose to speak that way, then you're obligated to fulfill 
that promise. I'm involving God. It's, so it's not, I, it's not, I swear to God. I swear with God. God swears with me. God co-signs the fact of the veracity and the truth of my pledge. To go back on that makes God a liar. You know, I hope our listeners are following closely the way you've enticed them to see the Ten Commandments as a living document. Um, that it's not a document relegated to one particular faith perspective or one uh, faith tradition, but it offers to all individuals a way to judge how their behavior um, within a society either elevates the society to a mamlechet koanim, a kingdom of priests, or lowers it um, from its highest um, possible point of values. Well, our Christian listeners will recognize that with Jesus and with the Christian Bible, that the Christians did not have to follow the Mosaic laws because Jesus absolved us of that requirement because we were not, we were, we could become clean and pure and we were good and kind with one exception, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are found also in various forms within the Quran. And so when I'm deep, when I mentioned in the beginning, the three Abrahamic religions, it's the three Abrahamic religions, all of which see the Ten Commandments as something supreme and meaningful, not to be placed on the wall, not to be placed in the, in, in, in the public square but to be followed and understood because they are rarely understood. They're quoted far too often and rarely understood. So in the 90 seconds or so that we have left, share with your listeners why Shabbat is included in this litany of um, statements between God and the listener and reader. Because the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest, not a day of relaxation, not a day to put your feet up and I'm resting. It's a day to refrain from the other six days of the week, from the everyday. It gives me literally a respite from the work, from thinking, from dealing with everything outside that's mere fluff and ephemera. It allows me and insists upon me that I return to my deity's ideal of a day of rest, refraining from creating or destroying or being angst filled. I guess as um, the deity rested on the seventh day, um, we affirm that we are created in the image of the deity by our acceptance of the notion of imitate dio of acting as God did. Exactly. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Brooks Sussman, founding rabbi of Cole Am Congregation in Freehold, New Jersey. I want to thank uh, him for again sharing with us some great insights about the Hebrew text. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak with him. 
Uh, you can follow our conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM or on the CHRI website as a podcast, chri.ca, or on iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and having a good day.